Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. It seems likely that she was born some year or the other. It's possible that she had two or three siblings. There is speculation that she killed him. Either she died of cancer or something else. We don't know for sure, but we think her mummy was found. Welcome to the 21st Century View of Ancient Egypt. The end. Welcome to the show. Today, we are going to talk about Queen, or rather, King Hatshepsut, who ruled the land of Egypt approximately 3,500 years ago. She'll be followed in our next episode by Cleopatra, arguably the most famous Egyptian queen, uh, in large part due to the Romans, followed by William Shakespeare, followed by Elizabeth Taylor. Now, to drop them into history, there's really not a whole lot that was going on at the time, so we're going to do it a little bit different. Hatshepsut was born around 1500 B.C. Cleopatra wasn't born until 69 B.C. That is a 1440-year difference between the two of them. There's life in Egypt before Hatshepsut, and there's a whole lot of life that goes on between the two. Cleopatra is actually closer to the moon landing than to the building of the Great Pyramids of Giza. And Hatshepsut missed the woolly mammoths by only about a couple hundred years. It would be like the difference between our time of 2014 and the 6th century. King Arthur and Beowulf, that's a huge gap between the two of them. Egypt's history goes back about 6,000 years. Now, Egypt was a powerhouse at the time. Why? Every year the Nile would flood. That flooding would cause the silt to land on, on the ground and cause very fertile soil. This gave them food for their people and food to trade. The Egyptians believed that the flooding of the Nile, therefore their prosperity, was tied to their religion, to the gods. Therefore, their political and economic systems also were circled around their religion. During Hatshepsut's time, Egypt was peaking in power, wealth, and territory. They had a military. They had other countries brought under the Egyptian rule. But between Hatshepsut and Cleopatra, Egypt would lose some territory. Babylonia takes over for a bit. And then Alexander the Great conquers Egypt and puts a Ptolemy on the throne as pharaoh. And that's when Cleopatra's story starts. Hatshepsut, which means foremost of noble ladies, was born sometime before 1500 BC. Sorry, I cannot be more specific. The second of the four children of the I and Queen Amos of Egypt, or maybe the second of two, or maybe the first of two. <laughs> There's a lot of maybes. This whole episode, and we don't want to have to keep saying it over and over again, maybe this or maybe that, really... Here's the thing. The further back you go, it's all theoretical until somebody digs something else up. And I feel for them. I really do. They spend whole careers with this one theory that really all the evidence supports, and then some guy finds a tomb or a city and all hell breaks loose. And bless them. Just bless them. They're, they're adaptable, but I, I'm sure it must be a blow. So the best you can say about Egyptian history, especially the further you go back, is that it is adaptable to retrofitting. That's a great point. So, moving on, uh, however many original royal children there were, here's how it worked. This family tree was pretty much a straight line with circles on it. There's no way I can describe. <laughs> the term sister-wife means something else these days, but back then, it meant your sister was your wife, because royal blood oughtn't to be diluted. So, ideally, 
only children of the great wife were eligible to try for the throne. And so Hatshepsut was one of those fortunates born to the great wife. But there were tens, if not hundreds, of half-brothers and sisters. Papa was also called the Mighty Bull, and he was strong like Bull. He didn't come as the direct line in the royal family. Yeah, Mama, almost, is her name, had had no full brothers. Mm -hmm. No problem! Behold the wide range of half-brothers we have for you to choose from. And his name means, he who is born of the moon god. So he married Mama, whose earliest known ancestor was the sun. As in S-U-N. Oh, yes. <laughs> As in that flaming ball of gas in the sky. That must have been a hard reproduction. So they had the same father, which makes it really convenient for, you know, Father's Day, but not, in fact, for genetic diversity. That's right. a bummer. Hatshepsut's father and grandfather and great-grandfather were all warriors, well-known for their triumphant armies. Her father was considered one of the greatest soldiers Egypt had ever had. Uh, so by the time Tutmos came to power, the peace had been created by putting his sandaled foot on the neck of dissidents all around the region. <laughs> and now it's a golden age of trade of agriculture, of literature, of architecture. We've done all the fighting before Hot Chepsep was born. She grew up among unbelievable riches and unbelievable deference. Literally no one on earth but her father and mother could tell her what to do, and her father answered only to the god Amun. But on the other hand, little H and all her H mates grew up in a palace made of mud. Functionally, it was an adobe palace. <laughs> She mostly ran about naked. It was the general state of many peoples. Mm -hmm. I mean, when your mom is a direct descendant of the sun, she's going to bring a little heat to the palace. Ah. I'm just, I totally made that up. <laughs> now, Hatshepsut was raised in what is present-day Luxor and educated for her future role, which would be queen. I mean, it was just expected that she was going to do what her mother did. But she was taught by tutors. She was taught to read and write. They were made to do the writing themselves. Even though a high-born person would have a scribe, or many scribes, to do all that messy crap, like writing, <laughs> or whatever, in a time and in a place where double-crossery and interfamily strain was common, you could sure walk up and down and dictate to your people what you're going to write, but the wise person would be able to read and make sure what words had come out of your <laughs> mouth made it onto the paper. She was taught to manage a household. She was taught to make herself pretty, even though she's running around naked. Basic queen education. She also, however, learned math, especially geometry, which is going to come in handy later. Yes. And they studied history and religion, largely the same thing in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly the history of her own family, <laughs> also yeah. um, descended from the gods as her, on her mother's side, with a father who revered the god Amun and showered the priests of Amun with a high percentage of his worldly goods. And a quick word on these priests. Thousands of them. The most powerful force in the kingdom, aside from the king and the Nile. <laughs> they had amazing influence and sway, both with rulers and the common people. What I'm thinking of here is, like, Henry VIII, you know, and the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church would be the priests of Amun. Mm -hmm. Like, they are a powerful, rich force to be reckoned with, whose opinions can alter the course of history. Right. Moving on with her education. 
You would think that in ancient Egypt that the papa wouldn't have a whole lot to do with the rearing of a daughter. Her role as a queen can be taught by the mother and by the mother's handmaidens and by the mother's sisters who were lesser wives of the king. But Tutmos kind of took a shine to Hatshepsut. She really seemed to be his favorite child. And she, he let her travel with him and learn about the power of a pharaoh and learn how to rule a kingdom. And he approved of her following boy pastimes and pursuits. Like she learned to hunt with a javelin, for example, which your typical queen, probably not going to do that. And as she got older, she started to wear clothing that was actually more boy clothing, short belted tunics that were clearly boy clothes. But they were probably easier to get around in than the full-length garments of the women. She is not a complete and utter tomboy, though, because her mother also had her under close personal supervision. Court etiquette was as rigid as Versailles. Mm -hmm. Not even joking. And for about the same reasons, actually, uh, tradition, one thing, keeping the nobles under your eyeball is another reason. Um, There were great expectations of this daughter, and she had a lot to live up to. You could not walk around the city reading the great deeds of your ancestors, um, not only in the books, but the architecture. (laughs) Walking Um, down a wall and reading the history, yeah. You know, without realizing that you you got a lot to live up to. So Mm -hmm. uh, she was remarkable and uh, extraordinary, and she really did rise to everyone's high expectations. I think that's a testament to her intelligence that will carry her through the rest of her life, which was long for that period of time. Papa made sure to notate in stone that Hatshepsut was the heir to his throne. Heir. After consultation with the gods, you know, his friends, yeah. his co-workers. <laughs> Went out for drinks with um, <laughs> Kind of. Yeah. Uh, after consultation with his dudes, he named her Hatshepsut, Crown Prince of Egypt. There you go. So he basically, it was take your crown prince to work day (laughs) from then on. Um, He introduced her to remote officials throughout the country, shared with her the papyrus work. (laughs) I guess it's not paperwork. Um, Egypt was a huge bureaucracy. In fact, they were so practiced at collecting taxes, they would wait until the floodwaters had risen so all the animals couldn't be hidden anywhere. And they would just go to the high ground and count all the animals. They knew. They knew. Well, you don't get to be the power country that they were by slacking off on taxes. So he definitely taught her how the tax collection worked. And how did you dispense justice and favors and rewards? He allowed her to continue to wear male clothing even as she got old enough to get her own establishment. You've said this before with so many women that we cover that... A lot of them rise to greatness because they had fathers who allowed them to do things like this. This is a definite case of that. Absolutely. This is 100% yep, clear. Yep. So as we were talking about uh, establishments, like baby Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth I got hers when she was a baby. Mary I got hers at what, nine? Hatshepsut was probably somewhere between 12 and 15, and she basically got a court of her own. Well, Egyptians liked to prepare for the next world. That's the one thing we know about Egyptians, Mm -hmm. pretty much, and get their tombs ready ahead of time. They chose their locations, and Mama, Amos, chose a site in the Valley of the Queens. Her daughter chose to be buried with the kings. That's telling, too. Oh, absolutely. Sure, sure. 
So for all eternity, she was going to be hanging out with the kings and not the queens. And then her mother, the most beautiful and serene Amos, who is always smiling in her statues and carvings, by the way. I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, that is. Departed the world of the living and took up her place among her ancestors' tombs in the Valley of the Queens. Once Mama died, Hatshepsut took on the role of essentially as queen as a co-regent with him. He made her the co-ruler, cool daughter of a god. He said, your forehead will be crowned with the double diadem given to you by him that presides over the thrones of all the gods. By which did he mean himself? The personification of Amun? I do believe so. I love the double diadem. It's kind of like the Tudor Rose. It's mm -hmm. North and South Egypt had become one country, and the rulers of each blended their uh, symbols for this one crown that the pharaoh would, would wear. They took a trip up the Nile to the other capital, so Thebes, you know, modern-day Luxor is where they lived. They went to Heliopolis, which I love the name Heliopolis. Heliopolis. I think that's really great. And on the way there, they stopped at Memphis, the actual first Memphis, the one made of mud and not country music, where she saw in the shockingly beautiful necropolis the steppe, Pyramid of Zoser from the Third Dynasty. So she saw a pyramid on her trip that was already a thousand years old when she saw it. Well, she's in the 18th, I guess we should say that. She's in the 18th Dynasty, and a dynasty isn't just a ruler. It's the whole family of rulers until they they run out or get overthrown or whatever. So this went way back. So we think Hatshepsut, ancient Egypt, here's just another example of it. Ancient Egypt goes back farther Hatshepsut. It's kind of like us versus the Norman Conquest, mm -hmm. or maybe us from the Vikings. We're a couple hundred yeah. years off in yeah. that case, but I'm just saying it's that's how far the away difference. this is yep. from her. And then they went to Giza, and you've seen those pyramids. Maybe even that funny picture of the Great Pyramid taken through the door of the Pizza Hut next door. <laughs> that's the funniest juxtaposition I agree. that I have ever I seen. But in her day, of course, there was no Pizza Hut. No. <laughs> Much to her sadness. And they were a lot more reverent about this pyramid. Oh, yeah. They didn't just, you know. So she had heard these people's stories. It must have been like if we were to go to Hatfield House. Elizabeth walked here. I know. Or, you know, we go to Versailles and we stand in Marie Antoinette's bedroom. It is freaking thrilling. I, gosh, to be, I would just, can you imagine to go to the places that we've talked about? Well, we were standing in Amelia Earhart's bedroom. And how exciting was that? So she was impressed by the buildings and with their owner's immortality. Incidentally, the Sphinx still had a nose when she saw it. <laughs> so, hooray. And uh, that would be an image with her face on it that she would reproduce many times in her reign. So on to be introduced to the gods of the north where the god sets kind of the bad guy of retribution. <laughs> have to tell you, Set is kind of a fallen angel a little bit later. They didn't like him so much. He was like a bad guy. Well, didn't, you know, all religions need a fall guy. Scapegoat. Scapegoat. <laughs> These Egyptian warriors liked him for his um, utter machismo. He was not, he was kind of violent. Mm -hmm. But, um, so anyway, there she got the cobra-shaped diadem. It's like a golden circlet with a cobra head on the forehead. And it's in every Cleopatra Halloween costume kit. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> um, then back home, where Almun slash Papa crowned her with both the white crown of the north and the red crown of the south and invested her with the titles of her mother, which included the title of wife. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to leave that there. 
Yeah. Because there's no telling. No. It wouldn't be unheard of. No. So Hatshepsut, favorite of the goddesses, fresh in years, Mothkare, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who lives forever, etc., etc., was 19 years old when she was officially crowned as co-regent of Egypt. Now, Thomas had a good run, I would say, as a king. I mean, he did a lot for Egypt, brought him into prosperity, and filled a lot of the coffers with grains and gold. But he did die at about age 50, which would seem pretty old for that era, especially for someone who lived his early part of his life as a warrior. So, who's going to step onto that throne? Well, for a time, now how long a time is highly debated, and I'm not going to get into it, because you can find any number of years you wish to find if you search long enough. Oh, if you search, you can find that Hatshepsut was the daughter of the pharaoh that found Moses in the Nile. I am not giving that as fact, because I don't believe it to be true, but, I mean, you can find whatever you the want. The only thing that I'm thinking about, the, um, that suffix did run through her family, so it wouldn't be absurd to think that at least in her family, mm-hmm. Tatmos, Amos. But the dating of Moses and the dating of Hatshepsut seem a little bit off right. to make it. And the, the Bible doesn't say that just as the daughter of the pharaoh. But you would think it would have to be a pharaoh who was a daughter who was pretty cunning, um, who had her daddy wrapped around her finger to be able to get away with pulling this baby that was supposed to be killed out of the Nile and raising it as her own in the palace. I mean, it would have to be a daughter of a pharaoh that was like Hatshepsut, but there, I, I don't believe it to be true. So she ruled for some amount of years. Hatshepsut ruled alone as sole regent under her own name and authority. Now, at least two queens had done that before, but it was not common at all. Generally, a queen was most definitely subservient to a husband that she must possess. And the queens that had done it in history before her had very short reigns during very tumultuous times for Egypt. So it wasn't the same kind of situation that she was into. But she was the sole remaining fully royal child left of her father. So if the line of her house was to continue at all, it had to come from her. Of course, Queen Elizabeth I had the exact same situation, although the latter handled it by not handling it. (laughs) So hot chef said again, no royal brothers to marry. But hey, regard all these half-brothers over here to choose from, which seems like an echo of a previous generation, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. And so, historians agree that Papa probably marked this particular man out ahead of time. Tashmos II, can we just call him T2? T2? We're going to call him like (laughs) T1, T2, and spoiler alert, there's a T3, because of course there is. Yes. But historians do not agree on something pretty fundamental. So all these things I just said, from way back, when Papa declared Hatshepsut his heir, Etc. Some researchers insist that that whole story was nothing more than a backdated claim on Hatshepsut's part to seize the throne from T2, who was the rightful heir. Now, here's where I feel non-Egyptologist, just a common sensologist. That second. <laughs> oh my gosh! Can we put that on our business cards? Common sensologist. Take it as you will. This is what I. This is what I. And saying the second scenario is not as likely because Hatshepsut was the one with full blood. That was factually a big deal. And she did need to marry as the last one. But I just think that Papa's previous treatment of her from a small child points to the fact that she was his choice. 
And so, how did she rule alone for all that time as some usurper? I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, either way, G2 was this amiable fat guy who basically liked his wife to take care of things. He caused no trouble. He got in no faces. He sent troops out to remind people he was the man of the house, but he didn't go himself. Uh, he was not a warrior, or opinionated, or obstructive. And I'm, I'm guessing there were some angry, ambitious minor wives who looked at this guy that had stronger personality-laden mm-hmm. sons who were like, that guy? You picked that guy over my son? Like, you know, I imagine. But the thing is, maybe he was perfect for her. Because if she's going to rule, right. she just needs a placeholder. Right, a figurehead. That's not going to mess right. with what she's doing. And I think Papa might have known, you know. Regardless of how what their relationship was, they were married, and they had at least one child, a daughter. But no official sons, at least that we can see. But it doesn't matter, because you know what? T2's working on that. We know how the story goes. He's getting the job done. Check. So family life well in hand. Let's leave Hot Chepsut here for a moment and take a little break. And when we come back, we will go into Hot Chepsut's second rule and second co-ruler. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 titles to choose from. For you, the listeners of the History Chicks, Audible is offering a free download so you can try out their service. To go along with this episode, Redland Blackland, Daily Life in Ancient Egypt by famed Egyptologist Barbara Mertz. It covers daily life and the afterlife for members of every level of society. Or... For something completely different, what about Bossy Pants, written and narrated by Tina Fey? This is the funniest book either of the chicks has read for a long, long time. To receive your free audiobook download today, please visit audible.com slash thehistorychicks, or simply follow the link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. So, Hotshepsut has married, has had at least one child. It's time to get along with the business of ruling. Chapter 2. So, Hotshepsut found at last, at last, an advisor, a person to lean upon in a way she couldn't lean on T2. A vizier, if you like. Mm -hmm. Uh, A right-hand man, maybe a lover. How are we going to know? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, at the very least, a trusted employee and friend. And he had been with her for quite a while. I mean, since she was a child. So Senmut was of low birth, but had risen by ability so high, in fact, that when Hotshepsut's daughter was born, he was appointed, quote, great nurse. And he was in charge of her fortune, both literally and figuratively. Her fortune and her fortunes. And there are statues depicting this advisor, Senmut, holding the daughter of the king. So Senmut was her architect, her project manager, her comptroller, her administrator, basically her Cardinal Wolsey. <laughs> so going back to the Henry VIII. Um, together, they began Hatshepsut's temple at modern-day Deir el-Bahari. The temple itself is called Jazir Jaziru. Jazir Jaziru. 
Wow. I was saying it just a minute ago. Jazir Jaziru. And it still stands today. And you can go there. Mm-hmm. It really, it really does look modern, it by looks the way. It's very modern. It all, kind of almost reminds me of uh, the Lincoln Monument <gasps> on steroids. You're right. Thank you. It was reminding me of something. Back to contentious facts. Okay. Here we go. We've already determined that uh, T2 wasn't the most physical of men, and the amount of time that he actually ruled, you can see anywhere from 3 to 14 years, but he died. So T2 left a 6 to 10-year-old boy as his successor. Their daughter, the full royal, may or may not have married him, may or may not, in fact, still be alive. Uh, yeah, we, if we can't even get to that point, let's just say the only thing we do know is Tatmos three T3, is now on the scene. He's between 6 to 10 years old, and he is technically now the king, and not Hatshepsut. But she made an unprecedented move. Two years after T2's death, she declared herself to be the king, not the queen. The king. Now, that took a lot of political savvy to get that done and to get people to accept her as that. She had been dressing as a boy during her childhood years, probably out of comfort. We don't know. We weren't there. But now, for all official business, she is dressing as a pharaoh. She's wearing the short kilt. She's wearing the blue and white striped headdress. She's wearing the right crown. She's got the crook and the flail, the things that are in their hands when the sarcophagus. She's got all the accoutrements of a pharaoh, and she's dressing the parts. Now, she declared that the gods had spoken to her about this, as she, in fact, had royal blood and was descended from the sun, whereas this boy, son of the son of a half-blood at best, and his nobody wife, she put it more politically correct than that, <laughs> had none. And she had her supporters, notably and critically, the priests of Amun, who, remember, wielded great power. So Senmut's artist bolstered her claim by painting murals in that temple, the temple we just talked about, the admittedly fanciful tale of her conception. Yes. God speaking to mom and saying that the child was divine. So yeah, mama uh, awoke to the magnificence of the god Amun, the glowing god who did what he desired to do, shall we say. And then he said, Hot Shepsut shall be the name of the daughter I have placed in your body, and she shall exercise kingship. My soul is hers, my will is hers. And then he's shown letting the god who makes all the bodies out of clay to make Hot Shepsut from his limbs. That's like divine... Yeah, so that's what her that's what she's claiming at this point as to why she should be the pharaoh. I mean, and it worked. Then it was also like you said before, it wasn't unprecedented. There were two, maybe three queens in the past who had stepped into the role of pharaoh for a short period of time, were accepted as the ruler for a short chaotic period of time. At least one also did the dressing as the pharaoh and the men's clothing. So it wasn't like, out of left field. It wasn't unprecedented. So, whatever she said, it worked. Because the people agreed. So, the little son, T3, had his supporters, too, mostly because he was male, frankly. But he was a little kid. And the priest backed his stepmother, aunt, person, Hot Shepsut. <laughs> so, what could he do but wait, really? T3 is from this point. And his ambitious mother, by the way. A dark shadow on the horizon. He, by the way is often shown very tiny 
in carvings behind Hot Shepsut, and that rankled him. T2 was shown that way, too, and there's no evidence he gave one crap. Right. <laughs> to T3, it was offensive, and it was horrible. And T3 had the warrior genes of, of Grandpapa. And, Perhaps. And yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, so technically, Hot Shepsut didn't usurp the throne because she did recognize T3 as a co-ruler from here on out in her carvings. Right. But like I said, again, he was a small little dude in the background. <laughs> she was the boss, and he was the consort. The um, depictions of her began to show her wearing the beard of office mm-hmm. and the king's crown. Mm-hmm. She wasn't tricking anyone. I mean, she was famous from her childhood. You know, she'd had a child. People understood the fact that she's female. Right. It was more of a showing of authority. But what cracks me up is no one can get their pronouns correct from here on in. Her dad used to do it, too. He once wrote, The Majesty of Him, My Daughter. Right. So, from here on out, the her, the him, the queen, the king, you know. Well, as far as gender equality goes, yay. Doesn't matter. Who cares? There was not a word in Egyptian to say a female pharaoh. It was a male job. It was king. There was queen was a lesser position. Correct. So why would she want to call herself a queen? She did dress. I mean, there are depictions of her in female outfits. So it's not like she was walking around dressed as a king. But for official portraits and things, right. you want to put on your court dress, right. which in this case was male clothing. Right. So it must be said that Egypt was prosperous under her rule, largely, I would think, because she was not hiding off to war all the time and conquering people, but just in a, you know, kind of a defensive, maintaining border state. She had an army, but it was to hold the line, keep the bad guys out. Right. So um, this reminds me so much of Elizabeth I. She chose advisors wisely. Yes. Both of them did. And then she let them do their work. I know. It's completely unheard of. Choose smart guys, set them free. She built monuments. She increased trade. Economic prosperity was self-serving. Yes. (laughs) But also a way to be, you know, the mother or father of your country. We do write little things we want to say, and I did want to say this. What did she do during her 15 to 22 year reign? She kicked ass. She was a badass ruler, not in the negative sense. I mean, she wasn't, like, chopping people's heads off or, you know, murdering. But she at least gave the illusion that she would do it if she had to, to protect her country. She worked hard every day. Mm -hmm. I know we have this image of Egyptian queens, like, drifting through rooms of stone, vaguely with a cloud of fragrance Uh in their wake, doing nothing. But she read everything. Petitions were brought to her from everywhere. She worked hard every single day. In the 15th year of her reign, she wanted to celebrate her jubilee, an anniversary of taking a hold of the crown. It's supposed to be 30, but let's move yeah. it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she asked her right-hand man, Sinmut, hey, can you put up the largest obelisks ever made? You know, two of them. I want two of them, like, right here. And Sinmut, uh, like, on a tight deadline, too. Uh-huh. Like, too tight. But what did Sinmut say? You know, bless his heart. Yes, dear. Oh, yeah. Unlimited manpower helps, but when... I don't know, man. And now an obelisk isn't, like, built like a Lego obelisk. It is one piece of stone. If it cracks, you got to go make another one. And, in fact, that's what had to happen. Mm-hmm. They got one almost all the way out, and it cracked, and they literally freaking just left it there. They're like, dang it! <laughs> and started over, because you have no time. You can't even clean it up. Just leave okay. it. And, and there it stayed. They built a special raft out of 
whole trees to bring this action down the river. It was the tippiest crap ever. Everyone thought any minute it was going to flip upside down and like bite. Well, and there's not a lot of trees in Egypt. I know that the Nile is, makes fertile soil and stuff, but it's temporary. There's not a lot of trees. So to get the wood to make the boat, it's... Yeah. I know. So, you know, basically he got these behemoths down the river in this death-defying, literally hell or high water scenario, <laughs> um, and then devised a way to stand them up that involved a ramp, some sand, and some intrepid slaves at the bottom of the hole shoveling the sand out. Yikes. I would not like to be those guys. They were a triumph. They were the marvel. They were the tallest structures anywhere at this point. They were covered at the top with a metal called electrum, which is a mix of gold and silver. And originally, she wanted the whole thing's gold, but... You know, this is her advisors again. She had a guy that was her comptroller. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd written down his name. It doesn't matter. He's the minister of finance, and he's like, veto. To her credit, she's like, okay, you know, you're, you're right. That is extravagant. More testament to her good... Uh, her competence as a ruler, that she listens to her advisors. Well, and that they were brave enough to tell her no. Yes, yes. I think that is, that right there tells you more about mm-hmm. her. I, I gotta agree That her advisors yep. are willing to tell her yep. no. So T3 is watching everyone working. The onion harvesters are working for her. The obelisk <laughs> builders are working for her. The priests are working for her. He was just determined to pull her down. So he began questing, because what is a bored young warrior to do? Uh, and at one point, he showed back up with seven dead princes on his treasure-laden boat. And here's this freaking hippie, all peace and love and my people at home, um, you know, functionally eating granola and bean sprouts, you know. He did gain some... <laughs> I'm sorry. So he did gain some adherence. I mean, war has an attraction for some people, and sudden wealth has an attraction for even more people. But not... Yet the right people. He could not, not yet, overcome her divinely born propaganda. But what he did have, suddenly, was a son. Dun, dun, dun. Hatshepsut had to make a move. She had to do something grand on the order of these obelisks. What could she do? There is a mystical, magical place called the Land of Punt. It's mystical and magical because it's really cool. But we don't know where it is. Some people say it might be present-day Somalia. Oh, they say it could be possibly yeah, yeah. any number of places. But one of the things that Hatshepsut did during her reign was to get uh, commerce going with other countries, to do a lot of diplomacy with other, go beyond where they normally were. Exploration. Yes. Yeah. That was part of her platform, I guess. So she mounted all these expeditions to build relationships with other countries, which... You know, for now, we were like, hey, that's very progressive of you. Instead of just taking them over, let's make them our friends and trade things. So this land of Punt was kind of like El Dorado, the fabled city of gold. It's funny to note that simultaneously, the books I read say, no one alive has ever seen it. And they asked the guy where it was. So uh, it's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, she's me. not the first person to go there, and she's not the last person to go there. People knew how to get there. But we don't know now. It may have been foolhardy to send her key supporters away on this expedition. Um, I will tell you, behind the scenes, momentum seemed to build behind T3 while they were gone. But when they came back after two years, those boats were so laden with treasure, they rode low in the water. Now, these boats, imagine the ancient Egyptian boats that are on the Nile with the guys paddling them. They are 
essentially riverboats that have suddenly crossed the Red Sea. Riverboats that are now in the open ocean. I mean, that alone, the fact that they came back, <laughs> says a lot about their seamanship. But they came back with uh, this bounty. Now, she has told this whole story in her temple on the walls, this whole story of the expedition to the land of Punt. They brought back apes and greyhounds and leopard skins. They brought back jewels and emity and ivory. They brought back 30 myrrh trees. Now, myrrh, which we only know from frankincense and myrrh, um, was very important in the mummification process and, incidentally, Hatshepsut's favorite scent in the world. Well, she loved the smell of myrrh, and it was very emotional to her, and it was very special to the god Amun, and she planted all these trees. And in in she planted them in a garden for her father in her temple and on one of the lower courtyards. There's a whole, it's just, it must have, they're not there now, but they must have looked so lush. The air oh. probably smelled so oh, good. yes. Absolutely. The uh, rulers of Punt are illustrated on these um, images as well. And they were kind of, you could tell the difference between them because they're a little more curvy. And I think I wrote bootylicious. <laughs> as opposed to the Egyptians who were generally kind of slim. Slim and, well, you know, you're living in the hot desert. You don't want to carry around extra pounds. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but anyway. Uh, okay, so... So the Punt expedition, though grand, may just have not been enough. That diary on her temple wall is silent now. For about five years, she is there but not there. T3 wanted glory like the Amun priests had finally turned toward him. Um, he was one of their own. As a matter of fact, he had become a priest of Amun as a young man. And he was a man. I, I, the loyalty just turned. And the pendulum swung. And all the weight of the priest of Amun came squarely to rest on his side of the scale. He managed to turn her defensive army into an attack mode army of 700,000 dudes. That's what we're looking at. Now they're attacking other countries. Now in, in what would have been Hatshepsut's 22nd year of rule, disputed, of course, mm -hmm. how many disclaimers do we have? T3 declared himself sole ruler by which we are to assume that Hatshepsut is dead. Uh, logic says he probably murdered her or had her murdered. Others say perhaps it was cancer or a bad tooth, which is the most recent one. At about age 50, which is ironic because that was about the same age as her father, she died. That we know. Mm -hmm. So T3, as king, had 34 years of taking names and kicking donkey all over Asia. Over 350 cities fell to him. He was the strongest, richest, most feared king in the world. So, is it better to be loved or feared? I mean, I just don't know. I think Hatshepsut was loved, and he mm -hmm. was certainly feared. So. And she was successful, too. It wasn't like mm -hmm. she was loved and let the country go to crap. I mean, she... Yep. She did things for her country, and it was very prosperous. So curiously, and for no apparent reason than pent-up resentment that I can see, <laughs> um, he sent out thousands of men all over the country to erase Hatshepsut from history. They chiseled her name out and replaced it with eh, T1, T2, T3, you know, whatever, just not her. They kept her face off of monuments depicting her. So there's this monument of her, and she has no face. They smashed her statues. All the precious mercuries at the temple were pulled up and burnt, as far as we can tell. 
the, those obelisks, though, presented a problem. They were kind of hard to wreck. So he decided that he was going to just hide them. He had them walled up. Her carvings were still there. Right. Interestingly, when they were rediscovered in the 1900s. Yeah, long time. So, uh, <laughs> that's some good rock work right there. <laughs> they did miss some. Of course they missed some. They also missed a lot of pronouns, which is hilarious. So, a lot of her remained. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, so they changed Tutmos too, and then it was like her or daughter or some kind of telling thing afterward because they didn't read ahead, you know. Yeah. They just looked for the code word right. and shipped they it out. They did a Google search on the word and knocked it out. And yeah. so, yeah, so they missed a lot, and that was very helpful for later historians. It I was. Think. But why did he do it? Was it just out of pent-up frustration and wanting to erase her from history? Was it about wanting to declare himself the great ruler, therefore establishing his bloodline as royal? Was it because they believed that if they got rid of any mention of them, if the person was forgotten here on earth, their soul perished in the afterlife? Well, that, that was even, pretty vengeful. Yeah, I was going to say, that's even worse. Well, um, they also took care to wreck and loot the tombs of her supporters, which really <laughs> does seem vindictive. It's like, can you not let them rest because they're dead? So he copied her obelisks and her sphinxes. He laid claim to peaceful achievements of hers, but bigger and better, of course. Of course. Because, you know. Incidentally, one of his copy obelisks is in Central Park. I love that. I am totally serious. It is in Central Park. If you are in New York City, it is just slightly west of the Metropolitan Museum of Arts. (laughs) Um, It's called Cleopatra's Needle. Uh, But it is a thousand years older than Cleopatra, but she built the temple to where the Romans moved them, so they are associated with Cleopatra, but in fact, man, it's complicated. But anyway, uh, it's made in London, if that's where you are, near the Embankment Underground Station. If anybody is around either of those and wants to send us some photos, we will put them on the website and, and credit you with them. That would be quite awesome. The temple, the famous temple of unpronounceability... You know, there's just not so many Z's in the English language, and it's just hard to keep remembering to say that. And I know, and it sounds French when I say it. So anyway, uh, it was buried by a rock slide and not really found until a lot later, uh, the 19th century or so. What an exciting find that was. I know. So she was basically written out of history for this huge chunk of time until, like, the 1800s. Now, Hatshop said herself, her sarcophagi had been found, because you pre-order. You know, right. You pre-need right. a sarcophagi. And as you get fancier, you order fancier ones. So there's multiple ones. <laughs> um, but you want to get the latest upgrade. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the latest model. Um, but they were never used. So um, that's not where she is. Uh, it was a big, fat mystery until 2007. 2007. Yes, 2007. When she was found in tomb unromantically named KV60. Now, there's a bunch of mummies of females that were found, and they weren't identified by anything. I mean, even an object on them couldn't be an actual, you know, if they found their cartouche, it couldn't be an actual identifier. There's very modern testing that had to go had to go on with all of these women and try to figure out who was who. Well, here's the good part. KV60, that tomb, is in the Valley of the Kings, where she always intended to be. And that concludes the life of Hatshepsut, King of Egypt. Catch us next time as we continue our series of Egyptian women with Queen Cleopatra. 
For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.medio.com. Where are all those lost things that have slipped out of our view? Places that have vanished, plans that Yeah.